HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It's a gorgeous day today here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And uh, we, I just have to say, we are living in a time of great appreciation for all things sour. I think, um, you know, I was just sipping on a sour beer. There's like all these like vinegar based drinks that are sort of all the health food rage, like Switchel and whatnot, and Shrub, an older sort of cocktail has come back. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly acidity is seen as a really important part of balance in food of all kinds. So uh, I'm really excited to talk about all things vinegar and acidity uh, in our today's program with a special guest, Michael Harlan Turkel. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So your book, it's actually your first book called Acid Trip Travels in the World of Vinegar. And I should say... Michael is also a uh, host here on Heritage Radio Network of the food scene. No stranger here. But you have co-authored, you have photographed numerous cookbooks. 
I mean, just this how is many? True. Uh, over a dozen. Yeah. So I'm getting into the multimedia, all, all parts of the book. All parts. You actually did food styling yeah. for the food of Taiwan. <laughs> One-stop shop. Yes. So, but this is your first book that you wrote and researched and recipe tested and photographed everything. Yes. Not the bolts. What did I do to myself? Uh, and why <laughs> did you choose vinegar? I'm still asking that question a little bit. <laughs> Come on. Um, I, I mean, I've always had an acidic palate. Mm-hmm. Um, when I cooked... I was always reaching for something to kind of like brighten a dish and liven it. And uh, when you ask most chefs, when they say if something's missing from a dish, it's usually acidity. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I realized this when I was a young cook or even before that, when I kind of reached for more acidic things like Sour Patch Kids mm-hmm. uh, as, as a candy choice. Um, but I've always needed that edge in a dish and I mm-hmm. kind of, you know, crave it so much. Um, but it was just happenstance that when I was working in Boston, a chef gave me a little cap full of some vinegar and said, this is the best shit you're ever going to taste. <laughs> and it just sat in the back of my head, you know, wow. and resonated for 15 years until I went to Vienna to actually meet the maker behind that vinegar. Oh, wow. And that was like a rare kind of vinegar that, uh, yeah, I, I was in number nine park with Barbara Lynch and it was this, uh, PX noble sour, which is like Pedro Jimenez, uh, a sherry style vinegar, but uh-huh. made a little sweeter. Um, by this guy named Gegenbauer. Uh, he is like the Willy Wonka of vinegar in Austria. <laughs> you know, lives in this house, literally makes everything underneath the roof, from milling his own flour to baking his own bread, churning his own butter. But he makes hundreds of different kinds of vinegar from single ingredients. Mm-hmm. Cucumbers, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, red peppers, etc. But this PX Noble Sour was a drinking vinegar that he had made, and I had never tasted anything like it before. It seems like throughout your travels and talks with chefs all over the world, um, it seems like vinegar is this like kind of known, um, it's like the secret ingredient that a lot of people know is like gives dishes that oomph that it needs. Um, but it's not very celebrated and a lot of people don't know about it. Maybe that's the beauty of it. It's like it's, it kind of goes under the radar but it's so important in cooking. Yeah, I also think there's a fear of it. You know, people don't know how to use it, and it's, it's such a powerful ingredient. Is, yeah. So, like, you, ha- you have to learn how to control it before you actually, you know, add it to your repertoire. Right, right. But, uh, you know, exploring it in depth and kind of giving it its proper due credit um, in throughout this book and all the recipes that you share, it seems to um, be celebrating rather than sort of hiding and... and um, I don't know. I, I think that it's funny. Like, I really like buffalo wings, for instance. And a lot of people think, oh, yeah, I can eat a lot of spicy, spicy, spicy. But the thing that I crave is the vinegar. Oh, yeah. That. Well, you can eat all that spicy because there is that much vinegar. Right. You know, it, yeah. It, it kind of like ushers it through, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fosters it along. And that that's part of what vinegar is there for, to either contrast or complement, you know, be, be that foil to other big and pronounced flavors. So you actually took your vinegar appreciation to a level that maybe not as many chefs have. And some of them have, as you've uncovered. But you started making your own vinegars. That is true. And this happened as an accident at first? You accidentally made vinegar? I think the original vinegar was made by accident, too. You know, I I just left um, alcohol. Uh, In this case, it was beer. um, Out to spoil. Um, I, I didn't realize that it would become beer vinegar. Uh, uh, I actually forgot that I had left it outside in a barrel. <laughs> um, I, I had an extra barrel. I think it was during kind of cocktail craze where people were barrel aging the groceries yeah, yeah, and yeah. such. And so you put it in. You put some beer that yep. was already kind of like stale or maybe yeah, a- it was an old keg that mm-hmm. you know was near kicked mm-hmm. and. 
it turned into the best malt vinegar I've ever had, you know, and I, I'm a big fish and chips fanatic, but you know, Sarsons and Heinz won't do anymore. Wow. Okay. So you started making vinegar and you realized you liked it so much better. And let's talk about commercially made vinegars and the difference between some of the older artisanal approaches. Vinegar takes a long time. That it can. seems like very antithetical to today's mass produced sort of food system. Yes. So, okay, so let's talk about balsamic vinegar, perhaps one of the most celebrated vinegars. I was fascinated to learn that originally this process, you can tell, you could probably describe it better. It takes something like 12 years? Um, yeah, some of them take a minimum to, to be considered DOP or the traditional, ah, uh-huh. minimum of 12 years, up to 25, and even some older than that. Um, yeah, I mean, vinegar. It's kind of like barbecue in my head, you know, slow yeah, and low yeah. is the best way to make it. But I mean, we're talking about very slow and, um, you know, patience is, is the biggest ingredient to making a great and, vinegar. And the payoff seems like it was just, it was so treasured that, uh, you know, you described that people would give it as diaries, this balsamic vinegar. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was matriarchal. It was yeah. mothers making it for their daughters, you know, when they married you know, that batteria, that series of barrels that had been storing vinegar for almost 25 years, if not longer, was given to, you know, the, the husband's family or the husband himself. What, what as, would they do with it? Would, you, would they throw it on tomatoes and salad? No, oh, they no, didn't have tomatoes. No, no, just, okay, just Parmesan. So, uh, just, I mean, at the end of a meal. on Parmesan? Oh, heck yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. It's like the greatest thing I've ever tasted. Mm. You know, at the end of a meal, I was, I was in Reggio Emilia with an amazing uh, balsamic maker named... Uh, Andrea, who has San Giacomo, and we were at some, you know, little Anateca, and the last course is literally the biggest piece of Parmesan I've ever seen, and it said, <laughs> have as much as you want, and a little jar of DOP Traditionale, his balsamic vinegar, and you just pour a little blop on top, and I mean, Parmesan's delicious as is, it's salty, what? it's got umami, but, you know, and some lactic acid, but it's just a marriage made in heaven when Ooh. you put some balsamic on top. Well, that's very fitting for a dowry, that. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, okay, so what happened to balsamic vinegar? I don't think they're doing that. Oh, man. Uh, do I? I don't have enough time to explain all that. You're going to have to read the book. You know, <laughs> like, it, it, it is. A, it's a bastardization of what was never supposed to be a commercial product. Uh, Up until the 70s, I mean, it, it was almost solely in two cities, Modena and Reggio Emilia, the only mm-hmm. two that actually are certified to make traditionale. Um, then people got a taste of it and it started getting okay. exported okay. and it's a process again that takes you know a minimum of 12 years so it's hard to stockpile a lot of mm-hmm. vinegar in in you know that period of time so industrialization you know occurred and uh, people figured out ways to mass produce it and kind of mock it with caramel colorings uh, thickeners etc and since americans or Anywhere outside of these two cities in Emilia Romana didn't know what balsamic really was. Yeah. You know, it, it, it could be the wool was pulled over our eyes. But it was it's still seen as this like sort of luxury, very like high, you know, gourmand ingredient. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's it's got a story. Yeah. Story sells. But the, the process hasn't hasn't kept up, though. Not at all. I mean, you can still find D.O.P. Mm-hmm. And I if you've never tasted a true traditional balsamic. It yep. is expensive, and I'll, I'll oh, tell okay. you that. All right. You have to, because there's nothing like it in the world. Huh. 
So most of the stuff is not that we see in the grocery store. Even like a fine, what about a fancy store that has like, I don't know, $20 bottle? I mean, of yeah, Maybe? You, start, you start seeing better stuff. You know, there's okay. these tiers to balsamic and the top is that traditionale. Um, after that, it's kind of funny. Uh, there's stuff called condimento, which is kind of like VDP wines or Vindupa in France, mm. where it's not a Appalachian wine. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not designated, but it's by a really good producer, and they just either didn't hit the marks to be considered that wine, or they didn't want to pay the money to be part of that association. Mm. So you can find some really amazing condimentos, but you have to know your producers. Oh, gosh. Then after that is IGP, okay, and that is the industrial stuff, and that is one of the most confusing labels you've ever seen because. Most of the language there is actually supposed to confuse you, so you don't know what you're getting. So you just buy it and just be gone with it. But, you know, there are some good IGPs. There are a lot of terrible IGPs. It's a it's a really um, oh mixed up, messed up world. I'm, I'm almost, I'm kind of like afraid to try the real thing because then I will never be able to, to go back. I mean, it's a good fear to have yeah. because that, yeah, it ruined uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> let's talk about another dark vinegar that has a lot of culinary, uh, let's say, acclaim. Um, Black vinegar, Chinese black vinegar. Yeah. You know, you probably know more about Chinese black vinegar than I do. Most people know about it. And I I feel really weird when I sometimes see recipes, um, Chinese recipes saying, ah, just substitute balsamic vinegar for this Chinese black vinegar. Yeah, I don't understand why that correlation ever started. So anyway, um, black vinegar... You know, not all vinegars are are clear and white. This is a dense looking, um, like dark bodied uh, vinegar that is that is aged a lot. And uh, you went to Japan and you found uh, some folks making apple black vinegar. Oh yeah. Well, you know, so black vinegar is an interesting thing because in Chiang in like the southeast of China, it was traditionally made. And then I hate to say it, but everything Japanese was. Priorly Chinese, yeah, <laughs> you know, well, it, we know that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. But in Southwest Japan, there's this amazing area uh, in Kyushu called uh, Kagoshima, mm-hmm. Kirishima, and there are all these kurotsu or black vinegar makers, mm. kind of making it in the style Crazy. of Chinese black vinegar. But there, they don't quite make it for culinary purposes; they make it more for like health and restorative. Ah. so you know, people go there and drink them. Uh, like like it's a youth tonic or, um, you know, they make power drinks out of them for cyclists. And cool. um, it's, it's a really fascinating uh, position that it's found itself in, you know, going from being a dipping sauce for, you know, uh, soup dumplings to mm-hmm. now being like literally an exfoliant for some facial cleansers. Cool. I, I found it really cool that you found this whole like sort of tourism industry around these black vinegars in Japan. Oh, but, uh, it, was, it was like Disneyland. Yeah, but it's like it's highly ref- it's like very expensive, right? To, to get some of these. No, 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 that's much more oh, accessible. Okay. I mean, really? unlike balsamic, where there are all those traditionales, yeah, there are some aged um, kurotsu or black vinegar in Southwest Japan, but. You know, they're aged for a year, maybe up to seven years, but they never get so, inel- you know, oh. inelastically expensive that hmm. you can't afford it. So many uses for them. I had no idea. How did you feel after you drank <laughs> it? Did you feel amazing? Well, that was, I think, at the taper end of a two-week trip around Japan, drinking uh-huh. primarily vinegar. So felt pretty <laughs> you're, pickled by that you're, point. You're like, your body is like 90% vinegar by I this point. I think so. You know, and yeah. I, I don't really get acid reflux. So uh, that was <laughs> the closest good. I ever came. <laughs> Um, okay, so much more to talk about um, about acid trip. We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Using food as a lens to observe history and culture, I take you on a weekly journey through different topics of culinary history. Tune in on Thursdays at noon to hear about the history of such topics as American cake, the accidental churning of butter, pho, the Vietnamese soup craze, and so much more. And help us keep this and other heritage programming alive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate and continue enjoying great programs. All right, we're back chatting more with Michael Harlan Turkel, uh, host here on Heritage, but also the author of Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. It comes out Tuesday, so I'm really glad to get the Wild. The, the sneak peek here. Um, and so for this book, I love that you explore how global vinegar is, and you go through so many different restaurants around the world. There's Japan, like we talked about. Um, Austria, France, Italy, but also North America. You went to interview and kind of cook with, chat with some of the best chefs, you know, in the country, like Eric Repair, Daniel Hum, Michael Anthony. Um, and I, I love that you kind of really get interesting perspectives on their overall philosophy on food through the lens of talking about vinegar. Maybe you guys talked about lots more than that, too. But <laughs> no, Thank yeah, you. But it, yeah, it really was such a funny, like, microcosm of their ideologies. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I realized it until you said it. But yeah, um, how they tr- how they see vinegar in relation to their cooking really says a lot about how they cook. Right. Or it really says a lot to that. They're thinking that much about how they cook mm-hmm. or what they cook in that it was such a disparity to find out that so many of them don't make their own vinegars or haven't mm-hmm. explored vinegar. I as haven't the thought way. about that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I hope I lit a fire underneath some of their asses yeah. to do so. Yeah, it, it sounds like um, you discovered some chefs who were actually making their vinegars, and I thought that was really cool. There was a chef in Ohio somewhere who was, uh, he, you know, had some leftover beer and stuff like that and decided to start his own vinegar company. Oh, yeah, yeah. Justin yeah. Dean, Richard Stewart of Madhouse Vinegar. And what's so cool is, you know, I, I approach vinegar from the same way, almost as a sustainability project. Yeah. You know, uh, when I originally started making beer vinegar in mass, I was using uh, spent grains and, mm-hmm. you know, and rewashing those, trying to extract more sugar out of them. And they, they're following a similar path in that, they're using wort that would otherwise be pouring down the drain right, and turning right. into a not just commercially viable but really delicious product. Cool, and also bottles of wine. I thought it was really cool. You um, collaborated with Stinky Brooklyn oh, and yeah. uh, Smith and Vine. Oh yeah, I mean, so this is a local wine store, and every once in a while you get a bottle that's bad, right? Oh yeah, and like, and then you we, ask them to save it. Yeah, we, without 
Patrick Watson and the crew at Stinky and Smith and Vine, this book or this project would have never happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can still walk into Smith and Vine and see my barrels on top of, uh, you know, uh, you know, beer and and, and soda fridges. Um, There's still stuff in there fermenting. But yeah, it was kind of like using corked wine was kind of like using dead bread when you learn how to score, you know, bread that's risen X amount of times and you can kind of just kind of cut it up Mm -hmm. that I I got all these free trials to be able to turn something that was, you know, seen as bad. Yeah. Into something good. What I learned later is, you know, corked wine is, is bad for a reason. You know, I can, (laughs) I could make it acidic and make it, you Uh know, feel a vinegar, but I couldn't get the aroma and nuances of a great bottle of wine out of it. Um, once I started making vinegars out of, you know, really nice wines, I realized why really nice wines are as such, mm. because they retain all that aroma and nuance. And you can actually foster that along in the vinegar process as well. Hmm. It's so funny that there's like such parallel uh, ideals for wine and then for vinegar. And then they can sometimes cross. Oh, yeah. Said. Yeah, I love reading how um, Megan, your wife, is a wine writer. So traveling around, you know, she'd be doing maybe research on wine and you'd be researching vinegar. Um, and, you know, vinegary or acidity is seen as like a, a flaw in wine. Yeah. It, I mean, it was really seen when we were in France. I went down to Orléans to meet this sixth generation vinegar maker named Martin Pouret and in Orléans, uh, on the banks of the river there, the, I think it's the Loire River, all that wine from the Loire would be shipped, and whatever grapes or juice uh, didn't make it or fermented too far were dropped off on the shores, and the rest of the wine was brought up to Paris because all wine was taxed, and they didn't want to pay money on bad wine. Mm-hmm. So, And that's where the name vinegar comes from, vinog, sour wine. Wow. But there were hundreds and hundreds of these Orléans-style vinegar makers in that small town. Um, Megan could have easily come uh, down there uh-huh. uh, during the trip, but she actually decided to go to the Loire and taste uh-huh. wines through there. And like you said, yeah, they, they try to stave off volatile acidity or VA, uh-huh. which is acidic acid in wines. So it, it's really kind of amazing to travel through Europe with her. When we went, it's all balsamic, you know, that's Lambrusco country too. So she was out there drinking that in the yeah. field. And then to realize that those same grapes end up as balsamic, like, yeah, I think it was eye opening for her as well. Yeah, it's like they're parallel industries. You know, you're traveling where there's wine, there's vinegar. And the Loire process was really interesting because this par- this industry for vinegar making, which wouldn't have happened if it weren't for these rotting bad wines that showed up, yeah. uh, didn't make it the trip, so to speak. Uh, they wouldn't have had this. Now Now you mentioned that there's uh, only one vinegar maker in the region? Because they figured out how to transport wine without things rotting. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the same problem. Yeah, anymore. no, not all. And so, yeah, there's this only one guy who does it the same way his family has for six generations as a non-interventionist. They just put them in barrels, uh, fill them up, uh, I think, 30% at a time, and just let the bacteria in the air control everything. Mm. All right, so Europe, North America, Asia. Where else do you wish you could have gone for this book if it, if your vinegar travels could go on forever? Oh, I mean, I, I have a list if they ever allow me to do acid trip too, but uh, Spain for sure, southern yeah. Spain to Jerez and see all the sherry vinegars. The reason I opted not to do that for my book, aside from time and money, uh, <laughs> was I didn't think I could teach people the Solera method, which is nearly as extreme as balsamic where you have oh. stacks of barrels and Wait, this is sherry yeah and okay. you know you put the four to five oxidized wines in there and you have to drip them down to the next barrel so 
in what? New York State apartment living. I, I just didn't have enough room for <laughs> I don't blame that you. many barrels and that much time for oxidized wine. Not, not even poor Smith and Bunny. Oh, no. <laughs> space. But like Mexico has, has really amazing pache, pineapple mm. vinegar, or they have banana vinegar, which actually is made from like overripe, you know, kind of like sweet plantains. No and where else? I mean, there's there, pineapple vinegar. Yeah. Um, you mentioned somewhere in South America. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, all over they, Latin America. They do that in Taiwan too. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else? What can't you make into a vinegar? <laughs> you know, um, I thought beans, but now I've seen bean vinegar. I thought nuts, but now I've seen nut vinegar. Anything that is a starch that can be converted into a sugar that can mm-hmm. be then turned into an alcohol can then become acetic acid, which is vinegar. So the world's kind of uh, open to that, you know, conversion. That's crazy. What do you suggest to people who might want to start their first trials and errors in vinegar making? What, what should they try first? What's an easy um, one to not mess up? Well, here in North America, um, especially the Northeast, you know, we have such a great culture of apple orchards. Ah, yes. Yeah. It's and apple season almost. You know, and... and We've all had that sip of, you know, apple cider that's gone a little too far. Yeah. You know, and it's turned into vinegar. It's because apple or apple cider has the perfect amount of sugar that can be converted into the perfect amount of alcohol for this process to thrive. Um, vinegar making is, you know, not that hard, even though I think the last 10, 12 pages of my book is a singular recipe on how to make vinegar. <laughs> uh, it's all about these controls and variables. and. Mm-hmm. Apple cider already kind of has those numbers within those controls. Cool. So you don't really have to do much. It's, it's like that non-interventionist uh, you know, reasoning. Like if it's got everything working for it, just uh-huh. let it work for itself. And now, can I just take a jug of apple cider? What if it's pasteurized? Is that going to mess no, it up? No, you need unpasteurized. Okay. So Though you can turn cider. pasteurized into vinegar, unpasteurized is that much better. Okay. And I just start with that? Yep. Okay. And I follow your book recipe. Yep. And truthfully, you just start with that. You don't need a mother. You don't mm-hmm. need something to accelerate that process. You just need time, patience, and the right environment. I have a vinegar troubleshooting question for you. Yes. I had a, I had a jar of sherry vinegar. It looked like it grew a mother culture on the bottom of the bottle. Yeah. The, should I should I like feed it? Should I what should I do with it? Once that thing drops under, underneath the surface, it's dead. Pull it out. Oh, it's dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's dead in the sense that it's not really producing Mm. any more acetic uh, activity. Um, It can be put into a new bottle of vinegar, and it helps foster it along a little bit. But once it drops, it's no longer a living mother. What do you mean? So once it sinks to the bottom? Yeah, once it's no longer Uh, receiving oxygen or on the surface. Yeah, yeah. it didn't smell too good. Yeah. I know. It starts getting like funky yeasty esters. Yeah, not good. All right, so I'll have to... But you don't need to start with any mother, right? No, that's a funny preconception. I, ah, Yeah, somebody once gave me a vinegar mother. Yeah, I mean, it works, but it works in a way that it doesn't necessarily need to happen. Hmm. Like, it really can hyper-accelerate a process, and it can destroy, you know, those nuances and aromas that you're trying to, you know, let happen naturally and slowly and, and, and delicately. Hmm. So, you know, that that's what... You know, acetators are they're they're these large hermetically sealed, you know, uh, steel tanks that are force carbonating um, alcohol into vinegar. Huh. So, by adding a mother, you're not doing it to the same effect, but you might be 
pushing it a little too hard. Okay. Do I need to have any other cool equipment, like your whiskey barrels? Or <laughs> no, you don't need a barrel. You could do it in plastic. A turkey baster, I think you're using. I still, to, like, I still do use a turkey <laughs> baster. But no, I think examples. I've upgraded to a white wine thief now. Um, okay. No, I mean, three simple things. pH strips, so you can test the oh, pH. okay. And those cost nothing. They're little litmus mm-hmm. tests. Um, a hydrometer if you're starting from scratch and actually making your own alcohol. Yeah. So you can get from it. From like apple cider. Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, and third thing is a refractometer, which measures the bricks or the sugar content of something. So that's even before making it alcohol, just to make sure it has the you know right amount of sugar that can convert. Mm. So All right. Those, gonna... you know, I buy a brewing kit and you add those three things on, you're good to go. Okay. And once you've made vinegar, uh, we didn't really talk too much about all the great recipes in this book. Uh, there's so many things you can do with it. I've, I've heard that, you know, vinegar is also really great for tenderizing things. Oh, yeah. And uh, meats, for instance, mm-hmm. before you grill. So if you have a tougher cut. Um, there's some cool ideas here about, like, taking vinegar and soaking uh, the egg yolk. Who, who did that? Daniel Hunt? Oh, yeah. Daniel yeah. Hume was doing, yeah. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. Just so, show, showing the effects of acidity on, on proteins. On, on an egg yolk. Yeah. It made it sort of like, uh, I don't know what. I'm, I can't really imagine. It's but like it, jelly, almost. It made yeah. it jelly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly you can cure things with vinegar. You can pickle things. It's just innumerable. Oh, yeah. What is your favorite application of vinegar? Oh, man. I have two right now that are like high, high, high on my lesson. Mm-hmm. First one's nanban or nanbansu, which is a simple Japanese sauce that can be used as a marinade or literally a dipping sauce Meat on the side. Meat marinade or sauce? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it, it's so versatile, but it actually comes from the culture of Portuguese missionaries in the 16th century. Ooh. You know, when they would transport meat uh, around on their boats so it wouldn't spoil. Ah. It, was, it was held in this, uh, you know, preserved state. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is nearly equal parts, um, you know, rice vinegar to mirin to sugar and soy, which is very Sounds akin good. to adobo. Okay. So I also love adobo. Sugar, soy. And mm-hmm. then my other favorite thing right now, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of it as vinegar, but Dijon mustard. Mm. You know, uh, I never know how to pronounce this. M I M A I L L E. May. The mustard I don't know company. How to p- yeah. <laughs> they were originally vinegar makers. Oh, no way. And, um, you know, there's so much acidity in, in their so mustard. There's so much acidity in their mustard. So I, I actually make it. this Dijon beef jerky, which just kind of like happened in my head and, you know, made that recipe. And the marinade for that jerky is one of my favorite, like, beef marinades if you're grilling now. So even if you're not making the jerky, you can just... Oh, I've grilled hanger steak Ooh. with that marinade. It's it's wonderful. Dijon marinade. I love that you write that if you're on a desert island and had to eat one dish... Jerky would be one of them. Absolutely. It's a very practical choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sitting around. Most people don't answer it that way. No. That question. They're like, well, you know, something that would expire probably. No. Uh, undoubtedly, <laughs> it is always going to be jerky. And yeah. most of the time, even when I'm not on the ship, uh, I have jerky in, in my you know bag. No way. Uh, do you have jerky right now? Uh, I have like 100 pieces of jerky at home getting ready for <laughs> Wednesday's oh. Heritage Books and Brews. Yay. That's awesome. So, uh, would you have any other book events that uh, everyone can check out? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it's about to start, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this Thursday, I'm very excited to be uh, being interviewed by Taste Matt Rodbard at uh, Books or Magic. Nice. Uh, so, 810, I think it's 730. And then go to uh, my Facebook page, I guess, uh, Acid Trip Vinegar Cookbook. Um, cool. And there's a list of events there. All right. 
And uh, check out the food scene, too. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you. Thanks so much, Michael, for, for sharing this journey. I'm so jealous of all your vinegar travels. I, I might have to <laughs> copy some of them. Oh, well, I'm going back on tour. We're just going to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Come along. Acid trip, too. Absolutely. Including Spain. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. That's all the time we have for today. And we'll see you next week or next season, really, on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.